Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli leads the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayanga steps in. Today we bring you Tony Todd, whose iconic embodiment of Candyman was a supernatural villain unlike any other. Tony Todd is regal. He's towering. His performance of Candyman, which was clearly informed by his years of theatrical training, it was alternately frightening and alluring, sexy and freaky, a stark contrast to the monstrous slashers of the 80s. At the core of that still scary, thoughtful horror film, Todd is essential to Candyman's legacy. Here, Tony Todd is astute, reflecting so heavily on Candyman and its sequels, and touching on his start in Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead remake, and how he paid tribute to the original film's star, Dwayne Jones. He also talks his own personal relationship and long-standing work in the genre and without. Here now is Tony Todd. Listen up, ghouls. First, tell me who you are, please. Um, hello. My name is Tony Todd. So you've managed to have uh, central roles in horror films, despite the cliche of African-American characters dying early in the In the first five minutes, yeah. What do you owe your longevity to, do you think? Horror has been a, it's been a kind mistress for me. You know, I started off in theater. Uh, I have my master's in theater from Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island. It's won a Tony Award and great professors. I didn't, it wasn't like when I was in school, okay, this is what I want to end up doing, but uh, moved to New York after teaching for a while, and New York is a great backbone for any actor in any medium, any profession, just because you have to survive in New York, you have to navigate the city, you know, and I was fortunate to grow up without Uber, without Lyft, without uh, GPS on my phone, so you had to make that appointment. Uh, ultimately, I got cast in Platoon, Oliver Stone's Platoon in 86, and that sort of changed my life. Everybody that was in that cast sort of went on to various degrees of career uh, success, you know, from Forrest Whitaker, Keith David, Charlie Sheen, Corey Glover, who started the band Living Color. We were all part of that camaraderie. As a matter of fact, we just finished a uh, Platoon 30 Years Later documentary that uh, should be out around this time. So, But then my first uh, exposure to horror was a pretty unknown film called Voodoo Dawn, which uh, was only memorable because I was excited to continue work. And we shot that down in South Carolina. With that, certain people within the business saw the film. Ironically enough, he had a machete in his hand. I was doing a film in Pittsburgh called Criminal Justice uh, for HBO with uh, Anthony LaPaglia, Forrest Whitaker, who's a dear friend of mine. And he told me during the break, he says, you know, they're doing a remake of Night of the Living Dead. 
Night of the Living Dead was seminal for me because I remember seeing it in a drive-in theater when I was in uh, grade high school. And uh, 68, you know, the great Dwayne Jones, who was playing the only African-American in the film, but he survived from beginning to end, and it was so realistically done. George Romero, who we lost this in 2017, uh, you know, sort of, I asked him, because I got to know him pretty well over the years, I said, why Dwayne Jones? Did you write the characters an African-American? And he said, no, it was open-ended. Dwayne just happened to be the best actor to come into the room. And that was really inspiring for me. So anyway, Forrest gave me the heads up. They were making a remake. It was Saturday. I ran over there on my day off in Pittsburgh, which is a quite hilly city. And I confronted Tom Savini, who's, you know, arguably one of the best special effects artists in film cinema, you know, Senator Rick Baker and so forth. And I sort of, he said, no, I think I'm done. I know, I know what I want. I think, and I literally, and sometimes in this business, you have to have an ounce of chutzpah. It goes a long way. And I said, no, you don't understand. It's my day off. And I literally grabbed him by the lapels and sat him down and did this, uh, this dissociated monologue about what I would feel like if I was trapped in a farmhouse. I mean, come on, as Jordan Peele says, I was a black character who was fighting off white folks his entire life. So obviously zombies are not gonna be that difficult. And anyway, uh, that was a Saturday. By Monday, we had the job offer. And that was my first foray into successful horror. Right, and that's your first lead role? It was my first lead role. My son was born. I was in a very, I actually had a choice between a very, another very popular movie at that time, um, but it was playing a drug dealer, and I said, uh, I think I'd rather be a zombie hero. Anyway, it was a blast. And Tom Savini and George Romero on the set, Patty Tallman, the great Tom Tolls, rest in peace, William Butler, Katie Finneran, who's gone on to be in eight that I can remember, musical the, uh Broadway productions, you know. You mentioned that, uh, you know, Tom Savini, of course, is known for doing, um, you know, lots of incredible effects works. Incredible stuff. How is he as a director? Tom was so excited to be doing, it was his first directorial project. You know, Tom is also a uh, amateur magician, as am I, so we, we identified immediately. Uh, we've hung out the Magic Castle together. You know, the best directors that I've worked with, I've done over what, 200 films or television projects, and the best people are those that have the joy of the profession intact. They're not just doing it uh, to pay the bills, they're doing it because they've been calling, and they, they you know, people like Tom Holland, Adam Green, Bernard Rose. Uh, these people that just like incite the the cast and the crew into putting their best work forward and making the joy the day a joy. So we were doing magic tricks on the side. We were dealing with zombies. Greg Nicotero, who's gone on to be the executive producer of Walking Dead, was our key makeup person. It was just a, we were shooting outside of Pittsburgh, which is a fantastic city, uh, Washington, PA. A bit racist uh, in the makeup, but uh, we were isolated in this beautiful white farmhouse. And, you know, you look out at night and people are peering over the hillside. Everybody was lined up to be a zombie in this movie. You know, I was just thinking about getting the work done, doing it completely, trying to create and give justice to what Dwayne had established, and getting home at seven in the morning to see my son. 
But Tom had all these elaborate shots set up, and by week two, I think he realized that he wasn't going to get everything in his head that he thought he would get, and things had to be sacrificed. Fortunately, George was on set, George Romero, and between the two of them, they were able to talk each other down. I also got to give a tribute to uh, John Russo, who wrote the original script. Uh, it was started as a novel, and he got the credit for the screen. Now, he was on set along with Russ Steiner. So Russ Steiner, John Russo, and George Romero were the three, the triplet that created the original Night of the Living Dead. Unfortunately, when they did the original, they didn't have the rights. So that's why you have so many bastardized rip-offs. And I think there's another one I just noticed in some fan magazine that's coming. They didn't have the rights. So when they made our version, the 1990 version, that was their chance to get monetized. Yeah, it's all because somebody didn't put a copyright One on. little slip of paper. But he created the whole zombie yeah, template. Yeah, well, at the time in 1990, right? So yeah. Like, zombies, you know, were still sort of more of a marginal horror fan. Yeah, it wasn't... Yeah, but... What ha what's happens between now and then? And why well, do you think it's the, become so big now? Television. <laughs> television had a way of... Uh, monetizing it you know as close as that whole thing was with greg and and george and tom i know i've heard and i've personally heard george say that he wasn't completely thrilled with the serialization of zombies you know sometimes less is more and he felt that it was very dangerously close to being a soap opera but um you know it's television I tried to stay away from television, but it keeps luring me back in, so I can't say too much about it. Oh, Star Trek. You can't say Star, Star Trek. Trek, yeah. But uh, an old acting teacher once told me that uh, movies, you know, build the house, television buys the furniture, and theater feeds the soul, so you judge where you want to be. Well, you mentioned you that you wanted to pay tribute to uh, the role of Ben. So, how did you see that role? Well, when I first saw Dwayne Jones do it, I'm you know I'm in a car back when we had drive-in theaters, which made it just even more visceral. And you're in this you know vehicle, and you look around, and there's all these vehicles in the same space, and everybody's confined and listening to little sound box. Uh, it's a different experience. You don't have to laugh collectively. You have your own sensation. And when I saw Dwayne, who was a tall, athletic-looking African-American man, that not one mention of the fact that he happened to be black was ever uttered in the film, but he was like, you know, he was just doing the task at hand. And I just wanted to do that. Also, I felt that we resembled each other. It was a commonality and tribal behavior. So I just wanted to do the thing and... I personalized, you know, what if this was my own newborn baby son in terror? What would I do to get through the day? How we do moment to moment to get out of this situation? You know, and of course, the ironic, the most ironic moment in the film is at the very end where we finally find a key to the gas tank, which would have freed us all, but except for those little petty problems that you have when people are trying to navigate their way out of a situation. When you consider zombies as a metaphor, I mean, what are they saying about uh, society, do you think, or about I always look at, like, I get to travel around the country a lot. I've driven across eight times, you know, and I've also been fortunate to work in other countries, and as remote as Wales, Paris, South Africa, which has been a blessing, London. The thing about America is that, you know, it seems big, but it's actually, it's very young. And it's very small, particularly today. You drive across, you know, it's just strip mall after strip mall after strip mall. McDonald's sort of like 
made that common. You do any road trip, you know, every 10 miles is going to be uh, golden arches, right? There's something about consumerism in, in zombies. Like in Romero's brilliant film, Dawn of the Dead, uh, which takes place in a mall, you know, and there's something about the zombies being drawn to this place where things are being sold, like glittery things are in motion and they can try to, you know, get their hands on, on products, you know. I've always thought of that metaphor of what that would be at the end of time. You look at what happens on Black Friday, you know, people wait in line for two, three days. Why, when you can practically anything you want right now, but then that rush to get in the door and it doesn't matter that the product is more valuable than their citizens next to them. The one good thing about zombies, there's no racial divide when they're in that mode. <laughs> they don't care to attack or eat anything, you know. They're not prejudiced in that way. In their minds is a utopian society. What's the story of Candyman uh, in short form? Well, you know, it was based on Clive Barker's book, The Forbidden, which was set in London. And I think what Bernard Rose, the director and uh, writer, did brilliantly was to transpose it to Cabrini Green. We put it in America. And, uh, you know, uh, when we did that film, I got a call out of the booth saying, this director wants to meet you. It's a film called Candyman. And I thought my agent was joking. I thought it was like a Sammy Davis autobiography. I wasn't sure. But I went in, he was the first director that just hired me, you know, without having to quote unquote, prove myself. He had saw me do a movie that I shot in Kenya, Africa, Nairobi, called The Last Elephant about elephant poaching. And he said, that's my guy, that's who I want. You know, in a nutshell, it's a dark love story. You know, there's scenes that weren't shown in the original production we did because the studio was afraid of interracial tension. Uh, but Virginia Madsen and I were deeply in love in another life. Uh, Candyman was an artist who did portraitures and stuff. And unfortunately, her father was a racist, had him lynched, cut off his arm, and replaced with a hook. What we wanted to do was it was a gothic love tale and he was trying to reclaim his lost love by getting her to honor him as a mystery man. One of the brilliant things about the film is that he doesn't appear into 45 minutes into the film. He's spoken about, they, they mythologize him, they create a legend base for the appearance of this person, and he set it in this brilliant Cabrini Green, which is now gone, but was one of the most dangerous housing projects in America. Uh, so other people were using the mythology of his name to sort of do whatever they wanted to do. But then when he shows up, it's real. Then we also had the beautiful music of Philip Glass. We had Tony Richmond, who did the, the Man Who Fell to Earth with uh, David Bowie. And we had Bernard, and we had a great cast. People said, you know, this may change you, this may do. But, you know, the, the good thing is that because of my theatrical background, I was always able to reinvent myself. And whenever I kept getting scripts that were too similar, I could always return to the boards, theater, stage, that is, folks. So you managed to keep yourself sort of pure as an actor, you feel? Well, yeah, I've been blessed. I, I get to do different mediums. You know, lately I've been doing a lot of voice work. I'm going to be directing soon, which is great. So, what do you... What were the key scenes, or for you, the most, uh, the key scenes of Candyman? Well, we had a great bee wrangler on the set named uh, Norman Gary, 
And, uh, you know, we used over 100,000 bees on that set. It was all practicals, which is, you know, totally makes a difference. But I remember three days before we started filming, uh, the bees had their own trailer, right? And they have special temperature controlled and stuff. And he says, Tony, it's time for you to get used to your co-stars. And I'm thinking, okay, this guy really, really loves his job. And I appreciate that. So I humored him, we went to the trailer. And uh, there was like the sound, just like, you know, harmonious, droning, buzzing, humming sound. But then he freaked me out because he started going, okay, that's Charlie up there. Don't worry, none of these bees, they're stingless, okay? Charlie, Stanley, put down the, the Tunson burner. And, and George, how are you doing today, George? I mean, he was personalizing all these little insects, and it, it gave me a, something that I could use because if you personalize it, it's less frightening. But you know, story-wise, that the sight of bees swarming over anything, or more specifically, in Candyman's case, bees in his mouth. We had to build this chest cavity so that we could open up the coat, and he was just covered. I mean, in the course of three films, I think I got maybe 26 stings altogether for these stingless uh, friends of ours, these co-stars. But they were an essential part to creating the terror for uh, this situation. I mean, what happens to a ghost if he's still living flesh? Will he be inhabited by maggots? And we chose bees because they're just that, you know, every kid is afraid of a bee sting. But what, yeah. what happens, Candyman? You should maybe explain, like, the significance of the bees. Well, you know, after uh, he was hunted down and uh, splayed across a field for being in love with someone that was the wrong color, he was uh, lynched. And then his arm is cut off, and then as the celebrants are surrounding the body in a field, this little boy tasted some honey and started chanting, Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. And that's where the mythology begins. And so the whole premise is that if you call his name five times, he appears. Is that the most famous line in the film, you say, or what's it? No, there's several benchmarks. There's be my victim, be my victim. Um, there's Helen, Helen. As, again, he doesn't appear for 45 minutes into the film. I think he has a total of uh, maybe 20 minutes screen time. But you and I were talking about before I came out here, because I rewatched, I wanted to watch a great horror film last night before I came in. So, of course, I chose Bride of Frankenstein, 1935 version, James Well. Of course, Karloff is only billing was Karloff and Elsa Lancaster. So, we uh, mentioned Bride of Frankenstein. <laughs> Yeah, I was uh, checking it out last night. You know, I was just looking, I was amazed because they said she had about 15 minutes of screen time as a bride. And I clocked it, and I think I swear it's only eight minutes. Uh, but it's brilliant eight minutes. It created an iconic character. And those of us that have been able to contribute to that sort of iconic legacy, you know, we, we owe it all to her for being that, that we knew it at the time, but you have to be as concise as possible. You have to have the trademark, you have to be able to deliver the scares, and you have to be able to make people talk about it after long after you've gone. When you got that script, when you saw that character, how did you decide to approach it? Like? I knew it was going to be a gothic experience, and so 
It was very important for me that to create a backstory for him. The whole thing about him being an artist was something that I was able to talk to Bernard about and contribute because I had to come up with a reason why his hand was replaced with something that was less artistic, shall we say. So Virginia Madsen and I made sure that we did gothic exercises together. We took uh, ballroom dancing classes, we did horseback riding, we did some fencing classes before we started shooting to have that sort of uh, atmospheric behavior going on. And I was doing all sorts of impression work at that time. You know, I would use dream books and there would be certain colors that would trigger certain, all this actor stuff that means nothing to nobody unless you're in the process. But you, you also, yeah, you bring this kind of soulfulness. It's both menacing, but yeah. also seems really sensitive. It's mostly about pain. Yeah, well, look at his life. He was a successful artist that was lynched and killed unjustifiably. So I wanted to be, it wasn't just to me about a slashing situation. It was about a tale of redemption. And I think it wasn't just me, it was Philip Glass's contribution with the haunting theme that created that. All I know is that well, we just had our 25th anniversary, 2017, is that everywhere I go, the most common statement to me is that you affected my childhood. Too many people, we, did, we weren't making a children's movie. It wasn't for people to sneak and watch off when they were eight or to have a pajama party. This is a film for adults. But, and it bothered me for years, but Bernard Rose once told me, he says, Tony, anybody that saw the film when they were a child will remember it forever. So just, you know, count your accolades and, and move on. But it, it did disturb me. One time my daughter was maybe four and it, the film had just come out and it was hitting, we were shopping, we were in, on the outskirts of Chicago, no, in Ohio. And uh, people were coming up for the first time, oh, Candyman, Candyman. And then finally she dropped a little shopping bag and said, that's not Candyman, that's my dad. And that resonated with me to never believe the hype, first of all, and to keep working and always try to reinvent yourself. And so far that's been successful. So became an icon and certainly one of the few icons you know of you know horror icon of color in, yeah, in no. American cinema anyway American mm, horror which is a shame but yeah and yeah I remember at the time it came out and that was actually I because I was also living in DC too which has had lots of complicated racial you know politics and stuff but that was actually I was born in DC oh were you yeah, yeah okay. I left I left when I was three packed okay. my bags went to Connecticut <laughs> well I remember it's, being kind of considered controversial and actually some people thought it was somehow disrespectful basically that there would mm -hmm. be like a horror guy who was a black man as opposed to well know. I remember before production we were almost shut down in, in WACP came in and wanted to know what the film was about. And Bernard uh, had explained it to them maybe three or four times before they realized it is going to be done intelligently and uh, with respect and they were going to have somebody. So we got through it. But I will tell you, because I used to teach, there have been over a hundred dissertation papers written on the film and college classes dedicated to either that or the whole black horror in Hollywood. You know, starting with Oscar Michaud, who was a black director that created his own project. He tried, he did a horror film in like 1949. It's very so obscure, you can't even find it. But you know, before this we had Blackula. And this is the first one I think that attempted to tell a serious story, you know? Yeah, Blackula is very, obviously very campy, basically, so. Yeah, but the actor who did it was a brilliant actor. I think also a DC native, so. You handed a, you know, 
a deal of cards and you have to work with it and make it make it right. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm not knocking the movie. I'm just saying yeah. it was the cycle. It's a fun movie. It was the yeah. cycle. It was part of the black exploitation era, so which I'm glad I came, you know, after that. Right. Of course, I think the other thing that probably made people uncomfortable was even though it was like 1992, that was still mm -hmm. a while back and still mm -hmm. like an interracial romance and the, kind of the the sexuality of it. They were afraid so. of the sexuality, which is why they cut. There's 10 minutes that they cut from the film that one day I think Bernard will, it's towards the end when he brings her to the lair and they're doing, we had this beautiful plexiglass turntable thing where we're doing this waltz together. That goes on in the film, I think it's maybe 45 seconds, but it was a 10 minute sequence that explained why they were committed. And then the next moment you see him layer down on the uh, pedestal. The, I think the intent is what you can edit all you want, but if actors are connected to the material and they're doing their job, you still get the objectives. It still so. comes through. And, yeah. and that's actually also, I think, what differentiates the uh, Candyman figure from a lot of the other kind of horror icons is that actually he's like kind of sexy. Well, he's tall. <laughs> well, he's, but he's got this passion. Yeah, he's got a passion. He wants what he wants. And this is his unrequited love. This is the woman that got away, the woman that he cherished. You know, and it happens to be in a horrific environment, but uh, you'd do anything for her. Even kill her if they can die together. One other thing, if I can say about the, I mean, 92, there were three Candymans. and the second one, the whole OJ incident occurred, and that sort of, every, America went wishy-washy on that, and it sort of hurt the continuation. It may have been five made by then, but you know. But there's always, there's always talks of doing another. I know Burdett very much wants to do one. He wants to do something in the mode of Bride of uh, Frankenstein, so we'll see. Oh, really? Yeah. Be interesting. Yeah, we'll see. I used to beg for it or want it actively, but then about eight years ago, I let that go and said, you know what, because I have another, a lot of other things to keep me busy, so, and I care about the character. You, as we've discussed, you've done a large volume of work, and a lot of it, you know, some of it was in the horror field and some mm -hmm. in science fiction, and then also you've done a lot of, you know, very, you know... Strange, Mainstream? Yeah, and, and also <laughs> serious drama on the stage, basically, yeah, yeah. you mentioned, so... Well, which, uh, which I'm most proud of, you know, I got to, may I say, I got to work with August Wilson, who's like probably the greatest American dramatist. Uh, he won two Pulitzer Prizes, but I originated King Hedley II uh, in Pittsburgh, and when we opened, it was three and a half hours. I didn't make it to Broadway, but I lived with the show for three years. It was amazing, changed my life. And I just turned down another, August Wilson played two trains running um, because it would have been a seven month commitment, and we're on another career trajectory right now, so. Good luck to you guys up in Seattle Rep and Arena Stage. You can create a powerful presence on the screen. Actually, this is also what we were talking about a little bit earlier, too, is that you can bring this training to it. Mm. But, uh, for instance, uh, your role in the uh, Final Destination movie, and particularly the first one, tell me a little about like what you do in that film. And Because uh, to me, you basically pretty much stole the movie with a very small part. So. Mm. Well, someone said there are no small parts you know if you do it completely from beginning to end but um yeah it was a, it was a one scene thing often uh my friends who did that james wong and glenn morgan final destination was originally submitted to, for the x-files i did an x-files episode called sleepless which is also kind of horrific and it was one of the top 10 episodes but uh 
So it got rejected, but they put it on their back burner. And then uh, X-Files ended, at least the first incarnation, and then uh, they wanted to make a film of it. So I also did a pilot for them, didn't go, but we always knew that we wanted to work together, so they gave me a call. They actually gave me a very good rate on that film, one of the best rates I ever had for working three days. I mean, I'm not going to say it, but it was enough to buy a house, let's say. Nobody knew that it was going to be more than one film. I'm playing the coroner, the kids. You know, it was, it was the closest horror film I've ever done that's closest to the formula of, you know, kids, teenagers being involved in something that they shouldn't do. And then the twist on it was that they had to figure out how to escape death, and apparently my character, the mortician, Mr. Bloodworth, knew the answer. So it was a hit, and uh, it ended up, uh, you know, they did five of them. I did three on-camera appearances and uh, one voiceover. The only one I wasn't in was the fourth one. And you made uh, that mistake. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they, you know, then it cost them, so. And your role also is here. It's kind of funny because you basically come on and give, uh, it's like all I exposition. give a lecture, yes, it's total all exposition. So that was the trick as an actor playing a character because you don't want it just to be new. You have to make it interesting. So we, thank God he was a mortician. I got to hang out with some, uh, see the uh, embalming process, and which is not a pleasant thing. But, you know, you got to know what you're doing before you do it. Otherwise, you're just facting instead of acting. That kind of exposure, if you're approaching your acting that way too, I think with horror films, does this kind of expose you to things that you ordinarily would not have? Yeah, and that I may never ever want to do again either also. But look, Final Destination was a tongue-in-cheek thing, so it wasn't dark, it didn't live with me. It just, you know, I was just happy that I raised my quote. And although quotes are highly overrated because just because you get a great quote doesn't mean that the next employer is going to pay you that. But it's just good to say your friends, yeah, I got a great quote. And my, my cats, I got a great quote. That's why you're eating what you're eating. <laughs> Have you worked on stuff that did, like, stick with you or that uh, kind of affected you? Theater. Theater does. Theater always sticks with me. I mean, I'm sorry. It, it really does. Um, here's a tip. The Actors Theater of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky, every year they do a production of Dracula. Okay? They've been doing this for 30 years. They keep asking me to do one and unfortunately it's always in like September, October, which is usually actors' busy, busy months. So we haven't been able to make that work yet, but one day we're going to do it and that'll be uh, if they keep asking, and we'll make that happen. Theater sticks with you because you work, you spend six weeks in rehearsal, and then you're you're bonded with your cast, and then you're performing in front of a thousand people every night, and you're giving it your all, and they're standing up, and then you have to go through your downtime. It's just you're sleeping, breathing it for you know months on end. There've been very special films, a lot of independent stuff I've done. Like I did a film called Driven, which was about LA cab drivers. That was pretty powerfully present with me. And I'm getting ready, I'm just finishing a film about assisted suicide. It's called The Immortal. Uh, that's really... It's called The Immortal, it's about an assisted suicide. Well, the whole, it's a quart, yes, it's a quartet of stories. So it's about people that either want to die, should die, are close to death that just can't die. And in my particular segment, it's about a couple that um, that agree one of them is dying of cancer and they agree to, you know, go through a mutual assisted suicide. 
and something goes wrong. Now, what's the advantage of putting, you know, kind of a social issue story like that into, like, more of a, you know, horror context? What, how does that... Well, for me, I think it makes it deeper. It makes it more resonant, and, uh, and hopefully whatever that the depth that you're going for will be recognized by the audience at large. They see something that's not... Look, horror has, like, there's all kinds of horror, right? Some people prefer a mindless plot, just show them woods and a teenager and two teenagers almost having sex and then a monster interrupts and da-da-da. You know, and that's perfectly legit. And other people like uh, the classic horror of, you know, that Universal introduced us to with classic iconic characters that either people relate to but for some reason made them incredibly frightening. I remember last night when I was watching Bride of Frankenstein, there's a great moment, uh, and I remember this moment, Frankenstein is going through the woods and he looks through a window and he finds the blind man playing the, the violin and it's just, just like this warmth of recognition because he hears music and it's soothing his soul and you know and, it's, and he's like starts whimpering through the window <laughs> and it's brilliant and to me that's the essence of horror somebody wanting something that somebody else doesn't understand what this person is sort of like the condition of America today the basis of horror is rooted in childhood, like a child blowing a dandelion, you know, and making a wish or picking at petals of flower, forget me not, he loves me not. It's that mystery of what could happen next. When we're little, I grew up very poor, didn't know I was poor until I was 14 because I was raised by my aunt, but we were so poor that we were framed by a cemetery, but for us, that was our playground. We'd, because it had big open fields, we'd run through it, we'd chase squirrels. Friday nights, drunks would come by, we'd hide behind tombstones and go, ooh, and just to have a, <laughs> to have a hoot and a laugh. Um, it sounds innocent, but that's the root of horror, doing the unexpected. Someone comes across the stage, you do something, and things change. It connects on an emotional level, too, where you're also able to bring in these sort of kind of big ideas, but then funnel it through you, these kind of emotional stories. You funnel, you personalize, and then you make it specific. You mentioned the bees, so what, uh, but, which is possibly the answer to this question. Let's see, what's the most grueling thing you've put through in the production of a horror film? Well, the bees are a big one, but also I've done some projects that involved a lot of special effects. I mean, well, prosthetic work, prosthetics, or uh, I've done, well, more, more in the sci-fi, but working for Mick Garris, I, we did, I had a show on Showtime called Masters of Horror, and uh, we did another Clive Barker story called Valerie on the Stairs, and my costume, I played as sort of a demon that, anyway, the body paint on that, was five hours and we shot up in Vancouver and it was always done at four in the morning. And uh, I didn't understand for the life of me two things. Why paint had to be cold? Why couldn't it be warmed up? And B, they were spraying me in parts. This is television that would never be seen on television. Why are we doing this? So those are difficult things. I've also, more so in my sci-fi work, gone through extensive transformation of face stuff which some actors are bothered by, but you use those four to six hours as a metamorphosis. You're constantly morphing and changing and becoming more like the character that you're supposed to do. Helps when you're playing Klingons. 
Kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, too. You know what? I, you always remember the films that didn't work. I did that project, and uh, I thought it was going to be great, but I should have known shooting on 28-day schedule where I had to play both characters every day. It was probably the film I wish I could make go away. I wanted it to be great, but, you know, you can't win them all. Is there any, like, um, project in the genre that you'd like to tackle? You had a chance? Um, I, I, I've always had a fondness for The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Bernard Rose, he, we did in 2016, and we did a version of Frankenstein. Uh, where I played the blind man, but it was set in modern L.A. We actually got 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Xavier Samuel played the monster. Carrie Moss was in it. Danny Houston. And so we transposed, instead of the blind man playing in the cottage, we put him under the 4th Street Bridge in L.A. And, and he was a blues man. He was a blues jazz musician guy. So we did that. Yeah, that that was a good. I wanted to be in the Frankenstein thing. I wanted Bristol Bernard wanted to do other. He wanted to do Edgar Allan Poe. He wanted to do. He said, "What would you like to do?" And I said, "Hunchback or Invisible Man." You remember the original Claude Rains thing? And also, I thought that would have social political comment as well. To have a six foot six black man is invisible in America. Where have we seen that before? Sounds great. <laughs> what did you, uh, since we mentioned Tanana Riva and Get Out, what did you think of Get Out as a film? I loved it. I loved the premise. I saw it before all the hype began and before it became, you know, I have to go see it. The beautiful thing about the film is that it resonates to different people in different ways, you know? Black audiences see it in a different way, white audiences see it in a different way, but everybody's affected by it. I heard an interview that Jordan did where, you know, because some folks are saying it's the only black horror film, successful horror film made, and he gave props to Candyman Live, and I think that is his inspiration, so I'm glad to be part of that company. But, you know, this is going to be a film that's going to be on award list everywhere, which is going to, for everybody that's in the horror medium, it gives more opportunity. You know, certain companies are looking for product constantly. Some people think it's a comedy. Some people think it's horror. I agree with Jordan in that it's a documentary. I know I saw it with a couple of different audiences, and mm -hmm. one of which uh, was, you know, had uh, more African American people in it, and you know, and they. But they knew right away. They were <laughs> responsive. Yeah, well, that <laughs> tends to be the case. And, and, and certainly during that film, there was a lot of uh, vocal talk back. If you could, if you could bear, do me a favor of listening. If you could say Candyman five times for us, please. Candyman, 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 Candyman. Awesome. Okay. Cool. And tell me about your next project. What do you got? Oh, uh, well. No, you know, you caught me off guard. Well, you know, um, I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, mini-series on MTV that we did, the reboot of Scream. And um, tell me about how, how the reboot went. So what was your... It went wonderfully. We uh, did a homage to Candyman, and uh, it was an African-American cast, finally. Some great people. Notorious B.I.G.'s son, uh, Tyga, um, R.L. Carson, who did... Uh, couple of projects and it's just gonna it's, it's a fun thing 
and I think and people really enjoyed it. So, and my directing project uh, this year is Sakeo, which is uh, a baseball project uh, set in the Dominican Republic. Uh, you know, in the last ten years, like we've lost uh, so many players, returned to the DR, and they just get like full of success. And we've had five tragic accidents happen. Sakeo means looting. And it has some horrific elements, but mostly it's about a coach that has to return and try to uncover what happened to his star player. So my and hands are full. And something like that is sort of like this gets into sort of a debate about what's what's a horror and what they now call a thriller. And you know, yeah. in the old days, those words used to be completely interchangeable. Basically. Yeah, it was, it they was were. Horrific they even scary. added comedy. You remember Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, which is a great movie. I mean, I remember as a kid, everybody knew it was coming on. You saw all your monsters. Plus, it was funny as hell. And now, uh, and now, there's I think this tendency to keep trying to stratify to try to say like basically, oh, if it's a horror film, it's like you know, but so it's. A but thriller. that's always been the case in Hollywood. Hollywood has always condemned the horror is yonder because they say, oh, it's that thing. But if you look at the history of film, which I have, you know, the universal classic monsters saved Hollywood's ass because they created the popularity. And that's always happened, even to back with The Exorcist, back with Rosemary's Baby, uh, things are faltering. And then you had a film that, like, captured the, the mindset, Get Out. I'm not saying that Hollywood is faltering, but, you know, it certainly infused, uh, gave it a shot in the arm. Well, it is kind of locked into, obviously, there are a lot of, um, you know, big formula franchise yeah, kind of things we'll, that we'll take over, so, well, which kind of kills creativity. Well, whenever that happens, I either run back to the stage or I found an independent story that tries to tell a slice of life from a different perspective. You can beat that. You can do it without having to do... The day I can't do that successfully, I'll just, you know, go back to my garden and my cooking and my horse be happy watch other people do it you know as i as i said before it used to bother me a lot that uh, uh not so much kids but people that would come up to me and say that you really you really scared me when i was a kid and you know we didn't make a film for kids it wasn't it was an adult movie my own children a boy and a girl young man young woman they didn't one of them i don't think has ever seen the film the other one didn't see it so they were at least 19. That has to be because it's it's a it's a romantic gothic love story that has monstrous elements, but he's not a monster. He's actually a victim, and it really bothered me that it was say, you know, oh, we like we like have summer parties, pajama parties, and we called your name, you never showed up. So I asked Bernard, I said, "What's this about? Did you know that this sort of subconscious backlash would happen?" And he told me, he says, "Any person that saw the film when they were young is going to remember it." for the rest of their lives, so just get over it, enjoy it, embrace it, accept it, and get another job. So I just keep getting other jobs. <laughs> I do, it has changed certain patterns. I mean, L.A. is so jaded. We see everybody where everybody in L.A. Is, works on a film in some capacity. But uh, at one point, I actually had to do, you know, I'm a cook, so I had to do my grocery. I wanted to, like, select my vegetables and stuff. I had to do it, like, after 10 p.m. because it's less crowded. Uh, little things, but not, not much. L.A., you, you better stop late. You'll see anybody. You know, so just make sure your car is working well and you don't break down in the wrong neighborhood. You don't order barbecue when you want Chinese, okay? <laughs> Life is good. I love film. It's a beautiful thing. 
has saved my life. Do you know any other other guys, you know? That who make horror films? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they have this certain thing called conventions that take place all over the country. So, like, my wife doesn't like me doing too many of them because they can be crazy. But, I mean, uh, we'll, we're very selective. We choose places that we want to spend, like, three or four days in Chicago. I always go back to Chicago. Uh, New York, I always return to New York. But every now and then you find yourself in San Antonio, or uh, not that San Antonio is crazy, but it's a smaller market, or somewhere in Florida, somewhere in uh, Georgia. And these people, horror fans, are insane. They show up dressed, they have tons of memorabilia that they want signed, why, who knows, you know, and they're just uh, vociferous. So you give them love and you sign, you listen to the story, which is always about, I was six when I saw your movie. <laughs> I shouldn't have seen it. My parents told me not to watch it, but they did. So that's on you. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D-E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>